How's it going, everybody? Ryan here, and I have a very special bonus episode for you, uh, and the first of what will hopefully be many interview installments of the Topless Robot podcast, where I recently got the opportunity to speak with Joel Schrack and John Greasley from King Soundworks, and they have been working on the sound effects and sound design and dialogue work uh, for the Orville Season 2. And with that debuting pretty soon here on December 30th, I thought it would be a great opportunity to uh, learn more about what goes on behind the scenes of what has quickly become one of my favorite sci-fi shows. So, on to the interview. I've done a little bit of uh, uh, background uh, on uh, you guys. It looks like... Both of you have uh, fairly storied history in uh, the audio department on a number of uh, different uh, productions, uh, Minority Report and X-Men Origins Wolverine and uh, uh, things like that. Um, were you uh, working primarily on uh, Foley uh, in general throughout your careers or have you guys uh, both kind of bounced around in, in different uh, audio roles? Yeah, we both got kind of um, a rich history in a way. I'll let Joel go first because he's been doing it a little longer than I have. Uh, my, I sort of had two halves. The first half of my career, I was worked on the set as a boom operator. That's that's where I got the Minority Report uh, credit. I did a bunch of green, just green screen sequences for on that show. But and then then got into post production and then just gravitated towards dialogue supervision because being recording production sound is basically about recording dialogue. Sure. And uh, you know, so that's kind of my my career in a nutshell. Cool. And then yeah, mine is. Um, I used to be a uh, years years ago. I used to be a professional musician. Um, so did a couple albums, did a bunch of touring, and then after that, kind of ran its course. Um, I was interested. I became interested in sound design and mixing because there's a lot of crossover in those, um, you know, skill sets. Oh, yeah. I've always been interested in film and TV, uh, particularly sci-fi stuff. So then I started trying to get into sound design for post-production. Uh, it seemed like a little bit of a more intelligent career choice than the, uh, you know, trying to do the, the rock and roll thing, uh, <laughs> which I've already given it a good stab. <laughs> oh, don't tell me that. I'm still kind of trying to do the rock and roll thing when I have the opportunities. But Oh, no, me too. I mean, I have a jam room in my garage and I still write and everything, but it's like, yeah, you know, it's not, it's, it's not paying the bills. <laughs> so what uh, was that transition like for you? Uh, did you, uh, uh, were there any barriers uh, uh, to entry? How, how difficult was it uh, for you to make that change from uh, music focus to uh, working on productions like this? Well, um, skill set wise, it was a pretty natural progression. A lot of people that do what we do have a musical background. Joel, as well, is a, he's a, a really good um, Latin jazz musician as, as well. Oh, awesome. A lot of people do play a bunch of instruments, and there's also obviously a lot of crossover with technology because everything's computer based these days. So you use a lot of the same software in music as you do in post-production, not only for just recording and mixing in, but also for creating and manipulating sounds. The band I was in had a lot of electronic elements. So we were using computers, you know, back when not everybody was using computers for music, or now I think basically everybody uses yeah, pretty much. for music. So that felt like a really natural progression. And then I still use a lot of the music stuff too. when sound designing, 
you know, especially sci-fi things, I use a lot of synths and stuff like that to uh, create sounds and then obviously to manipulate sounds as well, samplers and the same kinds of things that you might use in electronic music. Um, so, yeah, that crossover was super useful and it felt really natural. The only barrier is um, this industry is greatly to do with who you know. Yeah, And because I knew all music people, I didn't really know anybody who was doing this kind of stuff. And so trying to get into the kinds of circles where you can get the opportunities that you need in order to be able to, you know, show people what you can do, that was the hardest part. Um, so I did do it freelance for a little while and without really progressing too far. But then when I met actually Joel, um, who introduced me to uh, Greg King, who's the owner of the company that we work, work at. Um, that was kind of like my, you know, my chance to shine, and I've been here ever since. So that worked out well. <laughs> That's awesome. It uh, certainly seems so, as uh, uh, both of you just uh, uh, did the uh, sound design for uh, season two of The Oroville. Is that uh, correct? That is correct. We're currently uh, right in the middle of it. Yeah, so we've oh, got really? a few episodes, and we've got a few more coming. Okay, cool. Because uh, I I saw that that um, is debuting uh, at the end of this year. So is the production uh, schedule for something like that, like uh, you get maybe half a season down before they start releasing, and you continue working while as the season uh, is being actively released? Uh, basically, that's right. I mean, this show, uh, the schedule is slightly different, but typically, uh, in the episodic production, uh, the, the editors will start editing the episodes as soon as they get uh, footage in. They will begin sound once they start locking the first episode they complete, which would be probably, you know, anywhere from six weeks to 12 weeks after, you know, production begins. Okay. So we were doing the first, for season two, we probably were, did about four episodes while they were still filming. Now, filming is wrapped. I think they only did, what, 12 this year or 13? Uh, yeah, I think it's 13 um, plus that leftover episode from season one that they never had, right. which we did too. Um, so, yeah, so they... Um, this could, what you can have on a TV show is is they're shooting and then they start doing the video editing and then we start doing the sound editing and sound mixing and it's kind of a weekly a week by week thing where like on another show that we're mixing we're actually delivering the final mix and then it airs four days later and that's oh, the schedule wow. every week which is really tight and not um, you know that's not the, necessarily the the best way to do it that's just kind of the way the way that that one worked out with visual effects and various other scheduling things but on the Orville. Um, yeah, we you know we we've got about five or six episodes that we that we have either completed or are working on, and they don't start until December, so that is a much more comfortable <laughs> schedule. Sure, on that sure. One. So uh, on the topic of uh, the Oroville, obviously, Topless Robot is uh, we're uh, kind of a nerd centric website, so I know that all of our <laughs> readers and and listeners are uh, going to be most interested in in the Oroville here. Uh, so. Uh, with the Orville, I know, you know, there's there's all the different, you know, sci-fi shows and classic sci-fi shows that uh, have historically been out. You know, you've got all the Star Treks and, and things like that. Um, how much uh, influence or did you pull from that classic sort of sci-fi and, and how much uh, did you kind of have to 
invent or maybe alter some of those uh, old tropes and create new tropes, perhaps, uh, in, in the product sound design of the Orville? Um, it's interesting because, like you said, it's like sci-fi at this point does have such a storied kind of um, history and vault of, of existing lore to pull from. And um, so these are all things that kind of don't exist, right? Like you've got laser guns and, and there's in Star Wars, you've got lightsabers and then there's all the different types of ships and transporters and shuttles and all these things that we don't currently have. But because there's so much stuff out there with those sorts of technologies in them, there's started to become sounds that people expect to hear when you, you know, if somebody fires a laser gun, you expect this sort of pew type sound just because it's, you've heard it a million times. And so you'll get the sort of thing where people are like, oh, that's not what a laser gun sounds like, you know, if you stray too far from the sort of established norms of it. So that can be a tricky thing is you don't just want to do the same thing that everybody's been doing for the sounds of spaceships and faster than light drives and plasma weapons and stuff like that. But if you try to be too original, sometimes it doesn't land with what people are accustomed to to hearing. Um, so that's one aspect of it. The other aspect of it is um, with the oval itself, that's a very uh, sort of clean, clinical, pristine, slick ship. The way they do the whole thing on that is you kind of can't have too much articulation and like clanking and banging and rumbling because because the ship is, is so like slick and clean. Um, so all the technology on the Orville needs to sort of work in that world of, um, of being very clean and pristine because that's how it looks. Sure. Uh, you wouldn't expect so then, to hear junky noises from, from this ship. Exactly. So, so then you've got to look for, you know, if there's any other alien races in the show, which of course there are, they have their own technology that's different. And so there are opportunities there where you can say, okay, maybe let's like grind this, this weapon up a bit because it's from like an alien species where the, the, the vets are off a little bit. Um, I guess I would say. So, yeah. So, um, so yeah, like I said, they're just, there's just so much history now. Um, that, that informs the way that you kind of have to approach these kinds of things. Sure. Uh, but it sounds like even with that history, you still do have a little bit of a playground left, uh, where you can kind of toy with things. Uh, and especially it seems, oh, totally. um, and I, I mentioned to, uh, our readers, uh, that, uh, I was going to be interviewing you guys and asked if they had any specific questions. And one of them has to do with, uh, Yafit, uh, <laughs> moving around the ship. Um, and his wording specifically was, uh, did they... Uh, when making the sounds of Yafit trucking around the ship, did they do it by plunging their fist into a jar of mayonnaise or Miracle Whip? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's kind of, yeah. Um, that kind of is how you get those. Yeah, it's like squishy and goopy. Um, and those are one of those things where so much of that has been recorded. A lot of what we do is we have vast sound libraries, right? So sure. you could say, hey, we got to do, Yafit's going to roll in the room and say something. We better, we better get out, you know, the, the, the miracle whip. But <laughs> you probably already have a ton of that already recorded from all the other times when that was required for a film or TV show. So at this point, you can be like, let me just go to my, my squishy miracle whip library and we can probably, you know, cut it to sync from that as opposed to necessarily having to record it every time. Sure. There's, uh, there's 
does John make a pass on Yafit too? Or um, the cuts that we send. So, okay, we're talking about our Foley crew, which is what you mentioned earlier, where they actually perform the footsteps and the hand pats and all that kind of stuff live to picture as opposed to cutting it from libraries. Um, so he could potentially, our Foley crew could, uh, could do a, a Yafit pass where they do that in sync. But I think we almost never have the VFX ready in time. Because when we get the cuts from um, the picture department, it usually doesn't have very much finished visual effects in the cut. Mm. So we start working on it based on the things that you can see, and then you have to save some time later in the process for when the things that you can't see do start to come in. So, you know, if somebody's firing a laser gun, they probably aren't really doing it, but like later on you're going to get the, the light beam and the sparks and all that stuff. And it's the same with Yafit. They have... Uh, what they shoot, what they call plates, which is where he's going to be standing. And then they have the voice, you know, Norm Donald um, does his contribution. And then, uh, and that's all you have to start with. So you're going to be like, well, you know, I think he's going to roll in from the left-hand side and then press that button with his, like, tentacly thing. But, you know, <laughs> you don't know until it actually comes in. Sure. So you lay down a best guess base and then go back as more VFX come in to inform that scene. Yep. Interesting. You have to remember too that in in that character, you have to kind of go back to Seth. I mean, they created this, you can imagine saying this, let's create a a being that's just like a big kind of gummy bear. (laughs) And so there's a real specific, specific point to them creating that species and so with the visual of what he looks like, they obviously want the audio to, to, to really explain. Uh, you know, he's a creature that you can, you can basically stick your hand through him and come out and it doesn't hurt him. So that he, you know, he's very flexible. So, so the audio has to support the, the concept, and the concept comes from Seth. Yeah, so uh, that uh, brings up a, a question uh, for me on... Like I've seen uh, when um, showrunners, uh, you know, or someone creates a character, for example, and then they essentially write out rules and guidelines for how this character is to be portrayed, um, and yeah. you know, do's and don'ts essentially of the character and its representation in the media. Um, do you get any sort of like with a character like Yafit that uh, where the audio of his presence is going to be so different? Do you get any sort of that di- uh, directorial guidelines on like, well, he'll always sound kind of more like this. He'll never, you know, you'll never hear any harsh noises. You'll only hear kind of squish or or anything like that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, definitely. The like he, they do the the conceptualization of the characters, they do visual concepts, and then, yeah, the sound concepts come along with that, and, and someone like Seth, definitely, he's going to say something like, you know, it's, it's going to obviously be squishy, but he might not want it to be too gross-sounding, he might not want to overdo it, because then it becomes less about, you know, him just being a guy who's in the room and has contributions, you know, he, con- he contributes to the conversations and to the storylines and stuff like that, so if it's, like, too over the top, then you're going to be kind of stealing focus away in a way that is detrimental to the story or the character or whatever it is. So yeah, they have criteria in terms of how far to go, I suppose. Sure, yeah. sure. That makes sense. Um, I will, I will add that to that, that, you know, Seth is, is very particular on some of these creations and the other alien, the, like Isaac, the, uh, artificial life form, 
and there's been some other aliens. They, they, uh, the editor and Seth create the, the, the voice effect for those people. I, I do dialogue supervision. So when I get the dialogue, they've already done all that. The way Isaac, the artificial life form sounds, there's a specific process they worked out last year. They have other aliens. They'll, they'll do all that with Seth. So by the time I get it, I don't have to do anything. Oh, now, wow. on the sound design, they'll put placeholders that, that approximate kind of a concept, and then John will, will detail it out. Uh, sometimes he has a blank slate. Sometimes he takes what Seth and the editors have done and embellish it. Okay. Right. Right on. So um, with this being a, a sci-fi production, I imagine, and you mentioned earlier that a lot of the town, a lot of the sounds are kind of uh, synth-based uh, and and come from synths. Uh, but uh, how much uh, between synth and actual like recording? common noises and and maybe working like you know everyone's seen the the foley artist uh uh video of you know people smashing melons or or you know uh, rippling a saw or anything like that how much uh i guess how much synth versus uh analog uh audio are you working with like as a starting point um Let's see that if you rely too heavily on synthetic sounds, they tend not to. There's a phrase that I like to use, which is whether or not something sticks to the screen. So that's whether or not what you're looking at and what you're hearing feel like they're coming from the same thing, right? So whether or not the squishy sounds of Yaffe are believable when you're looking at him, that I would say, you know, yeah, that sticks to the screen pretty good. And the problem with using a lot of synthetic stuff is it doesn't really stick to the screen in the same way. So if I do use synths and created sounds from oscillators and any kind of thing like that, it's almost always layered with something that is actually a recording of something in the natural world, just because that really helps it kind of ground in the reality of of what you are looking at. Um, And obviously there's, you know, you could take a recording of a very common everyday item and process it now with the kinds of tools that we have to the point where it's completely unrecognizable. But you still kind of on a subconscious level, you can tell the difference between something that's been created completely synthetically and something that's been recorded and manipulated. It just kind of, even if you're not aware of what's been done to it, there's kind of a visceral reaction that I think people have. And if I used only synthetic sounds for the sounds of the ship, I think it would sound weird, probably. Sure. Um, of without spoilers, uh, what has been your favorite uh, sound to work on uh, this season? Let's see. Um, we have got some new um, kind of. You know, new experiences that the crew of the Orville is going to get into, some meeting some new people and going to some new places. And that's always fun because if it's a sound that hasn't been previously established, you know, like the krill, they had the krill in season one, they have the krill in season two, but then we also have other um, planets and aliens and stuff. So you can say, oh, this is something where there is kind of more of a blank slate. And that is definitely fun because it allows you to... You know, because then someone said, like someone like Seth is going to say, oh, we had this new thing. Like, why don't you, you know, come up with something cool for it as opposed to, hey, we have this thing that we had before, so it can't be too different. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So there are going to be some new, yeah, some new creatures and some new locations, and that stuff has been fun. Awesome. 
Um, so breaking from the Orville for a moment, uh, I would like to know what has been the weirdest experience in creating a sound effect for you? Um, there's, yeah, I mean, there's, I mean, the thing, like you said, the jar of mayonnaise type thing, that's always fun. We have done the, um, like smashing melons with a hammer. We did this one movie that was very violent and, there was a lot of like people getting beat to death in it. And so we really needed it to like progress from typical punch sounds to kind of the grosser, gorier parts. And so we did destroy some fruit on that one. Um, We also did this movie uh, Battleship a few years ago. Um, And there was an awful lot of like tearing metal and rending and grinding. Um, We destroyed a lot of car parts with a lot of power tools on that one. And at one point we had like an inch thick slab of, you know, I don't know, it was like a three foot by five foot um, slab of steel chained to the back of our van, uh, driving around, dr- dragging the, sh- the sheet of metal around the street and like poking the microphone out of the back of the open van in order to get just, you know, this kind of grinding metal sound. That was Holy definitely God. an interesting experience. <laughs> That's awesome. And also kind of insane. Well, it gets back to the, I was going to yeah. say, it gets back to the point that that, uh, uh, that is very important. I actually should circle back to this, is that even, even sci-fi sounds, you know, that are futuristic weapons and things like that, it's always good to start with an organic source. Right. You know, even if it's, you know, some grinding or a drill or some sort of machine and then you can process that, and, and, and you have a core, and then you can add some synth layers to it, so it sounds uh, futuristic. But uh, but anything that you record naturally in the world has a very complex frequency structure to it, and and your ear just picks up on that. Yeah. Where, yeah. Yeah, what comes to mind is uh, I remember seeing uh, a short special about... Uh, uh, someone creating a dragon roar or something. And so they started with like a lion base and then added other kind of roars to it and then worked at it from there. And and with the end product, you'd never realize that it wasn't 100%. You know, you, you it's just, it doesn't resemble its source at all. But right. if you really yeah. listen, af- once you know, if you really listen, it's like, oh yeah, of course, that's, at its core that is a roar i totally get that uh i imagine probably more than i know (laughs) as some recognizable root that uh is being used as that foundation yeah definitely and there are some crazy stories out there too like i remember reading that so i was a big fan of the movie ghostbusters and there's some great sound in that film oh yeah um and i read that they got the sound of the ecto-1's siren like the, uh, the you know the mm-hmm. as they as they're driving like the police siren, but it's their own special like ghost siren or whatever. I read that that was made from a, an old tape recording of like a, a jaguar, the um you know the the big cat. Wow! Like some sort of jaguar vocal screech that was somehow processed. And this is going you know this is the early mid eighties, so or whenever it was Ghostbusters came out. But that I mean to process a sound to make it that unrecognizable at that time is really impressive. And like I said, that might not even be true, but I really <laughs> like the idea that that's where that sound came from. Yeah, that is super interesting. I had never heard of that before. 
but yeah, I mean, and especially at the time, considering, I mean, nowadays, we, I feel like I take for granted exactly how easy it is for me to work with digital audio. Um, right. You know, not ever having any experience with tape and, and stuff like that from, you know, the 80s and, yeah. and before. Um, with uh, these uh, sets and uh, in, in creating the sound of a scene, uh, I imagine that um, depending on how it's filmed, I guess probably in the case of the Oroville, this is less of an issue than in other productions. Um, but I, uh, uh, Joel, you had mentioned ADR, uh, before, uh, I imagine that in a, in a lot of cases you would rely heavily on ADR versus not so much. Uh, is the Orville, uh, a heavy ADR kind of thing or is it, uh, you know, it, cause I'm sorry, I'm, I'm stumbling over my words, uh, and That's trying okay. to, uh, figure out what I'm, uh, trying to say here, but, um, with it being, you know, primarily sets, is it a more sterile sound environment to work within? Is there not a lot to, to have to replace? Or, or do you find that uh, you have to do an equal amount of cleanup, whether it's an on-location kind of shooting or, or a set uh, shoot? Uh, it's a two-part question uh, answer. Uh, the, 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 the production dialogue, it, you know, the, the ship is on a soundstage, so it's the, the environment's pretty good to record in. But there's there's a lot of cleanup because it's a movie set. Movie sets aren't constructed like homes and stuff, so they're sometimes flimsy. They creak. They do all this stuff. So I do quite a bit of cleanup on the dialogue so that you don't so that you don't notice that uh, the walls are made out of uh, thin plywood and things like that. And also the film crew sometimes when they do tracking shots, there's noise and footsteps and creaks. So. Uh, and sometimes the chairs sound, they sit in a chair and they'll creak when they lean back and all that. So, um, oddly enough, I use very 21st century machine learning technology <laughs> to, to, to clean up the dialogue. There's some fantastic tools nowadays where you can, where it can, you can ask it to recognize what's voice and you can start to, uh, pull out the stuff that's not voice. And so you have to work. So even though the tracks are really pretty clean, you have to get them, uh, you have to make them sound uh, like they belong to the environment. It's kind of the same old uh, thing. Uh, so there's not much replacement ADR or technical ADR, as we call it, but there are certain characters. Obviously, Yoffit, uh, Norm McDonald comes in, and other aliens that are created visually, they'll record those people ahead of time. And one of the cast members on the show, the Isaac, who's the artificial life form. In fact, there's a couple episodes in season two where he's the, the main character and whole storylines with him. That actor who, do, who wears a suit, you can't see any of him, is the actor that does the voice. But because of the way that he has this weird helmet that covers his face, they can't record him in production. It's just a, it's just a guide. Sure. And then he'll go... As soon as they had the cut ready, he'll go in and replace all his lines, and then they do a little processing. So there's oh, so there's that ADR is a given. They have to do that every episode, and sometimes they do quite a bit. So, but and he's, so those people like Yafit and Isaac, and sometimes some other aliens. Uh, Lieutenant Gunk is one of them. Who's a big kind of lizard-looking 
penis-looking creature. <laughs> 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 it's got a big proboscis. It's very strange. That, that's all done. So, And then what's different about this show, since Seth comes from a background with Family Guy and American Dad and all that kind of stuff, they go to his home and record these lines. It's a studio in his home. So he does all that and then brings it in. The editors cut it in before I get it. Okay. Um, uh, and that kind of leads me to another. The, the other thing that's interesting about the Orville is the the scripts are. It's not your typical sci-fi show. It's uh, the the writers and Seth have taken this idea where they want to write stories that resonate now. Right. They want to set them in the 24th century on this ship, and they want to tackle kind of in ninth century or whatever it is. <laughs> you know social issues and, and that. And there are some episodes where, and the other thing is slightly different about Star Trek is on the Orville, people live there with their families. Sure. So yeah. there's children, there's spouses, there's, so the stories can incorporate kind of regular dramatic stories. And there's some whole episodes where there's, you know, there's no gun battles. There's no, there's hardly any of that. But yeah. But uh, it doesn't mean that when it does come, like Seth always wants that to be ready to go. So we may have episodes that there's not a lot of sound design. There's obviously all the rooms in the ship, and they all sound different, and there's all those little background things, and there's button pushes and computers and doors and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but at any given moment, if there's just one little shot where a, a shuttle takes off into space or something like that, uh, his expectation is that it should sound better, as good as anything out there. And, and additionally, Seth does a full orchestra score for the show, you know, a 65-piece orchestra every sure. week, every episode. So this these these shows sound like movies. Yeah. Right. There's no difference. I mean, the orchestra is amazing, and it's a big, big, big sound. And so when there is a little action... It's got to be as good as anything, uh, so we have to just be prepared for that. <laughs> That's really cool. Really, I mean, it sounds like it's it's a really uh, fun show to to work on. Uh, and in general, I mean, just speaking as a fan, uh, I think that it he it really nailed the homage, you know, element. Like it's it's a, yeah. a beautiful. It's a better successor to Star Trek than Star Trek Discovery was. You know, it's it is, uh, yeah, is taking that, that seems torch. Seems to be the kind of prevailing opinion. Yeah, it, I mean, it, it's it's taking that torch and running with it and making it everything that it needs to be for this era and time. And uh, it's I was very pleasantly surprised uh, uh, by the first season, and am extremely looking forward to the second season. Yeah, yeah, I think it's a great. It's like. You know, he's tapping into the fact that on those subsequent Star Trek shows, like, there's not enough, people aren't really real. They don't crack jokes. They're not vulnerable. They don't have relationship troubles. I mean, there was a little bit of that. And his stories are are really, it's still, we're still humans. It may be the 24th century. We still have relationship problems. We still have, you know, issues and that is his writers and him they they write more stories that, like that but they're just in this backdrop of the 24th century you know on this starship yeah absolutely and it it just plays perfectly absolutely perfectly and uh 
Uh, I'm really, like I said, uh, beyond excited for season two, uh, which uh, I understand debuts on December 30th uh, with a yep. uh, two-hour yep. premiere. So uh, everyone, I'm sure, is looking forward to that. Um, As, I actually didn't know it was a two-hour premiere, but that's cool. Yeah, we, we've done those first two episodes. Um, well, I'm not sure. Mostly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Back, but. Right, right. But yeah, so that'll be cool, yeah. Yeah. You get double, double, double for your money. <laughs> Really excited for that. Um, I am uh, done monopolizing your your time, uh, but uh, I w- do want to ask you each uh, one last question, and uh, uh, that is, uh, for each of you, what is one thing that no one understands about your job that you wish people understood? <laughs> uh, I'll go first. Uh- the most people think of audio post as mixing and certainly the, the sounds have to be mixed and that's something people can kind of understand. You know, most people have made their own little mixtape. So they, they kind of get mixing. What they don't get is the, the preparation for the mixes, which is really what we call editing. And in my case, I get this production audio that's just cut roughly and it's got all sorts of imperfections and flaws in the wooden creeks or, or noise when they shoot on location and going through that, you know, uh, it, it takes, you know, uh, 10 days I get to prep this dialogue, 47 minutes of dialogue. And so that means I'm working very slow. I'm, I'm sometimes working one word at a time to make that word, make sure it's understandable. If there's a little noise or a problem with it, and John's doing the same thing. He starts with a blank slate and he has to put those pieces, not in real time, just prep them one uh, and I'll let him flesh out his answers. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's the same, it's the same for, uh, for sound effects and sound design as it is for dialogue. They might have prep work because you, if you, if it's not well prepped and you take it to the mix stage, the mixers can't really do anything with it because they don't have anything to work with. And so the prep is key. Um, I mix as well. And if, if you get delivered, tracks that aren't well prepped it's incredibly frustrating because then you have to try to make something out of it um but the thing we always say with uh tv for would sound for picture is that basically no no, people are only going to notice the sound if you screwed it up right so if everything is just the way it's supposed to be if the ship sounds just the right way if the alien life bomb sounds just the way that they should and everything's just working great then you're just watching the show and you're not thinking about any of that stuff actively because it all just works and it just kind of flows over you. Um, and that only happens with really great prep work. So if you do, if you're sitting there watching something and you're like, Oh, I just noticed, you know, this weird sound came in this weird way with this weird visual, then you're not watching the show anymore. You're now picking it apart and you're not engrossing the story. So that's when you know that you've really done a good job is when nobody notices. You know what I mean? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, or that tricorder, nobody knows that you spent seven hours and it's got ten layers to it. <laughs> right. Yeah. Because it just sounds like, oh, that's, yeah, that's the way that tricorder should sound. Yeah. yeah. We're not recording the tricorder. Yeah. Yeah. And then, yeah, at the end of the day, here we are, how many, de- how m- however many decades later going, oh, yeah, that's a tricorder, uh, tr- you know, tricorder noise. That's uh, sure, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yep. It has just become a fact of life. Right, yep. 
All right. Well, thank you, John and Joel, for uh, uh, talking with me. I really appreciate it. Really looking forward to season two and uh, keep up the good work. I look forward to to seeing all not directly dwelling on or paying any specific attention to (laughs) any of the individual sound effects or sound uh, elements to season two. (laughs) Yeah. Maybe if you go back, like watch the episode and then go back, watch it again. And then you can be like, oh, that's a cool sound, you know, from the second pass. (laughs) All right. I will definitely do that. All right. Well, thank you very much. All right. Thanks, guys. Take care.